0: On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we prepare for our visit to Dallas this week for the ASC Nurse Leadership Conference, talk about a recent issue about day-use tubing, celebrate the year of the nurse, discuss TRICARE's proposed movement to the Medicare payment system, and in our focus segment, discuss communication in your quality improvement program and interview Ann Schimmick about developing a culture of quality in your ASC.
1: Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, a podcast for anyone interested in the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is increasingly challenging, but organizations that outsource their regulatory oversight to ambulatory healthcare strategies have an edge.
0: AHS works with ASCs to oversee their quality improvement, risk
1: management, emergency and infection control programs, Run their meetings, develop education programs, and always be prepared for surveys. Welcome to episode 85 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for February 3rd, 2020, recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and I'm here with John Gailey, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. John is the author of a number of books about the industry and the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the industry leader in ASC Regulatory and Accreditation, Governance, and Quality Improvement Oversight.
0: So how do you like your new screen?
1: It's so cute. He put a picture of a little golden retriever puppy, the little light colored ones, like what we're waiting for. Uh,
0: no, we're waiting <laughs> for adorable. the news. Uh, we, <laughs> the, uh, our, our puppy should be born anytime now. We're still waiting for the news on it. So I thought I'd surprise her with uh, pictures on her brand new computer screens mm-hmm. here. So thanks to uh, the generous support of all of our listeners and our sponsors, we have been upgrading the equipment in our studio here. And now we have uh, all new iMac machines for recording and for uh, monitoring all the activities going on in the, the Studio. So, but the background are are all (laughs) public. So, we have a busy week this week. We're on the road to the ASC Nurse Leadership Conference on Thursday, February 6th. Yep, we're Friday. going to Dallas. We're going to Dallas. Sue and I are flying down on Wednesday evening, and we'll be there for the whole conference. Amateur Healthcare Strategies is a sponsor. We'll have a booth there, and we hope to record some interviews, and uh, maybe we'll have a special episode, depending upon our timing. Mm-hmm. And then next week, we have a very exciting episode coming up. SIS joins us as a sponsor next week. And to kick it off, we're going to have an interview with Craig Veach, which is going to be a look back in the last 50 years in the ASC industry. So... Uh, for those who don't know, Craig Beach is retired from uh, Surgical Information Systems, but he does still do some work for them. Uh, he started in the industry about the same time as I did, actually, so I was looking at it. He actually started three years after I started, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's retired and I'm not. Um, but this should be a real fun look back to see how the uh, industry has changed over the past 50 years, and even in the 30 years that both Craig and I have been in it. So uh, stay tuned for that episode next week.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one.
0: So just to put this in perspective, this week uh, one of our clients had an issue with regard to day-use tubing. um, And the vendor had brought this product in and uh, asked the employees to start using it. The problem was, uh, while there's really no problem when using day-use tubing uh, as long as it has a backflow preventer, Uh, in it. The nurse manager and the medical director did not know about this. It hadn't been brought in front of the Quality Improvement Committee and basically the vendor just brought it in and they started using it. Um, As soon as the nurse manager and the medical director found out what was going on they immediately stopped it. And then after some conversations with the nursing team it was decided that that wasn't something that they wanted to be doing. Again, I don't really want to talk about the day use tubing Mm -hmm. and its Mm -hmm. efficacy. Really the issue here is the importance of making sure you have good communication in your organization and that you just don't let a vendor come in and kind of you know, do their own thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Anything that that is brought into the facility, any new equipment, any new supplies, they really have to be, uh, well, at the very least, brought in front of the the nursing director and especially Mm -hmm. in this case, the infection control coordinator, which in this particular facility is the same person.
1: And they would have had to retrain the staff as well. If they had decided to use this, you you just can't go ahead and replace that. They would have had to plan out, did they need new competencies? Right. Um, Did they have to change their policy? Yeah. There's so much involved in it, so... And
0: remember, the rules are also that your vendors do not teach your staff. Your vendors kind of teach a person who then will teach the staff. You never want a vendor to be uh, providing the sole education on new equipment, new supplies, etc. In your organization, that's that has to be kind of a train the trainer type situation where that you know they can do it at the same time. They can be training you know the staff at the same time as the person who'll be doing all the ongoing training. But it's extremely important that you understand that those vendors are not going to be there all the time. So there has to be expertise in your organization as to how to use these supplies and equipment, mm-hmm. and that is uh, a standard. That's an accreditation standard. So uh, again, it was kind of an unfortunate situation. It was rectified quite you know, quickly as soon as the nurse manager and the medical director found out about it, and kudos for the nursing staff to quickly bring it to their attention when it was uh, quite uh, apparent that they had not been involved in the decision process.
1: And moving on to the news, the World Health Organization has designated 2020 as the year of the nurse and midwife to honor Florence Nightingale's 200th birthday. Who was highlighting the need to invest in strengthening the nursing and midwifery workforce? In many areas, there aren't enough nurses and midwives. Even when they are present, they may lack the power, training, equipment, and medical supplies to deliver basic health services.
0: Does this mean I have to bow down to you every uh, every time I see yes. you? Yes. Know?
1: Okay. For at least all of 2020, <laughs> and we can carry it on as long as.
0: <laughs> well, it's about time you get uh, recognized for the the wonderful work that all of you nurses do.
1: I agree, and it, and just some statistics that we're in. Um, their International Year of the Nurse and Midwife Toolkit that they have on the um, World Health Organization's website if you're interested in going to it they mentioned that there's 22 million nurses and 2 million midwives worldwide, which makes up half of the global health workforce. They estimate that the world will need 18 million more health workers to achieve and sustain universal health coverage by 2030. And approximately half of that shortfall, or 9 million health workers are nurses and midwives. Midwifery, work care includes proven interventions for maternal and newborn health, as well as for family planning, could avert over 80% of all maternal deaths, stillbirths, and neonatal deaths. Midwife-led continuity of care where a known midwife or group of midwives provides care for pregnancy to the end of the postnatal period can prevent 24% of preterm births. So I know that's not really in our industry, but I just think it's really important. They're going to have things going on throughout the year, just hoping to build the, the nursing workforce. Uh, And
0: just a point of clarification here, Sue is a pediatric nurse by training. So that's (laughs) that's why this is a little bit focused on that area. But uh, I think the whole point here is uh, recognizing the importance of nursing and how it uh, uh, is such an important part of what we do in our industry and Mm -hmm. trying to encourage your children and grandchildren to uh, pursue a a career in the healthcare field and uh, if they so wish in in the nursing in particular. So Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully this will bring a lot more attention to the workforce issues that we're going to be facing over the next yeah. uh, couple decades.
1: Yeah, we already know in the ASC industry that there's—it's always hard to get great nurses.
0: That's right. I did want to talk a little bit about TRICARE. So in a proposed rule by the Defense Department published in the Federal Register on November 29th of last year, entitled TRICARE, Reimbursement of Ambulatory Surgery okay. Centers and Outpatient Services Provided in Cancer and Children's Hospitals, TRICARE proposed moving to the Medicare reimbursement system for TRICARE patients. So uh, in the Federal Register release, they stated the found the Department of Defense Health Agency is proposing to amend its reimbursement of ambulatory surgery. Centers, ASCs, and outpatient services provided in cancer and children's hospitals, better known as CCHs. The proposed revisions are in accordance with the TRICARE statute that requires TRICARE's payment methods for institutional care to be determined to the extent practical in accordance with the same reimbursement rules as apply to payments to providers of services of the same type under Medicare. In accordance with this requirement, TRICARE proposes to adopt the Medicare payment methodology for ASCs and to adopt Medicare's payment methodology for outpatient services provided in CCHs. So the important takeaway here is that right now TRICARE is uh, reimbursed quite well in many settings and uh, they are proposing moving to the Medicare reimbursement mechanism. And the ASC Association responded to the proposal in late January stating the following, Although Medicare is an established payment system, it is also the lowest common denominator regarding payment for outpatient surgical procedures. While impact on specific procedure reimbursement may vary, ASCA has heard from our members that some procedures will receive significantly lower reimbursement under the proposed alignment so as to make them unviable to offer to TRICARE beneficiaries. This loss of access is not ideal, but possibly unavoidable as ASCs often operate as small businesses with narrow margins. Although TRICARE seems to be saving money on lower reimbursement per procedure, the result may be, in fact, higher spending if ASCs do not perform procedures and they are instead performed in the much higher cost HOPD setting. This effect will likely be exacerbated by the lack of a transition period for ASCs to acclimate to the new alignment. TRICARE notes that some providers may see increased reimbursement after this change and a transition period would make such providers wait to realize higher reimbursement. ASCA urges the Department of Defense to reconsider their proposal to adopt the Medicare ASC list in its entirety with no deviations or exceptions so as to prevent loss of access to certain services for TRICARE beneficiaries. So, hopefully, the uh, Department of Defense will uh, take these comments under consideration because I think our big concern here is that if it is no longer financially viable for ambulatory surgery centers to do the procedures under the Medicare reimbursement system for mm-hmm. TRICARE patients, those procedures, as ASCA indicated, would move back to a much more expensive uh, hospital setting, which I'm sure they didn't take into consideration when they tried to determine what the fiscal impact would be of this. Uh So uh, thank you to the ASC Association, again, for protecting our interests, and uh, we will keep you informed as we hear more about the future reimbursement under TRICARE. So let's take a short break, and we'll come back and uh, have our focus segment on communication and quality improvement.
1: Let's start by putting everything in perspective. That is referring back to the Medicare conditions for coverage. So, 41643, condition for coverage, quality assessment and performance improvement. The ASC must develop, implement, and maintain an ongoing data driven quality assessment and performance improvement, or QAPI, program and the interpretive guidelines. The QAPI conditions for coverage requires an ASC to take a proactive, comprehensive, and ongoing approach to improving the quality and safety of the surgical services it delivers. The conditions for coverage presumes that the ASC employ a systems approach to evaluating their systems and processes, identifying problems that have occurred or that potentially might result from the ASC's practices, and getting to root causes of problems rather than just superficially addressing one problem at a time. From a survey perspective, the focus of the QAPI condition is not on whether an ASC has any deficient practices, but rather on whether it has an effective ongoing system in place for identifying problematic events, policies, or practices and taking actions to remedy them, and then following up on these remedial actions to determine if they were effective in improving performance and quality. QAPI programs work best in an environment that fixes problems rather than assigning blame.
0: So, in that last sentence there, QuAPI programs work best in an environment that fixes problems rather than assigning blame, really gets to the heart of our theme, which is uh, developing a culture of quality. Mm-hmm. And in particular, we want to talk today a little bit about communication in that environment. So, let's start by talking about the importance of identifying opportunities for improvement. So, there are many uh, mechanisms, as we know, for identifying opportunities for improvement, and a robust QuAPI program will have a wide variety of such mechanisms. So let's just mention uh, the most common mechanisms uh, in the ambulatory surgery uh, environment. So things like the review of transfers to the hospital, unexpected transfers to the hospital. Well, any transfer to the hospital should be unexpected. You shouldn't have any planned (laughs) transfers. Uh, Chart audits, which would include like nursing chart audits as well as peer review chart audits of the providers. Satisfaction surveys, those are the things that you send out on a regular basis to your patients to find out, you know, what their experience was like and to also solicit feedback. The infection control oversight and surveillance, performance of environmental rounds, cancellation monitoring, tracking and trending of QAPI findings, which are also known as internal benchmarking, external benchmarking of QAPI findings, and of course, arguably the most important, which is incident reporting. So incident reporting, uh, Sue, as we both know, is one of the more controversial areas and often one of those areas that it's very difficult to get an ambulatory surgery, and in particular the physicians, to buy into. Mm-hmm. I remember in one of our centers uh, having an argument with a doctor who uh, said, he actually said to me, if I ever find somebody doing an incident report, I'm going to fire them. And his reason for that is that he felt that he ran such a great place that all of those issues should be resolved before they turn into an incident. And I used an example. I said, uh, you know, doctor, I know that this last week you had a problem with regard to cleanliness and that uh, you found some dust bunnies in the corner in your surgery center and you Mm -hmm. immediately called up the cleaning company and you uh, kind of read them the riot act about their uh, poor cleaning in that particular area. And as a result of that, you know, changes were going to occur. The cleaning company was going to take a much uh, more robust uh, approach toward cleaning. And I said, that's an example of an incident. You know, the incident was poor cleanliness. Mm-hmm. You followed up on it. In other words, you closed the loop by communicating with the cleaning company. You asked them to change and uh, then you will continue to monitor make sure those changes were, were made. And all that we're asking for in the, uh, the QAPI environment is to take those types of situations, and write them up as a quality improvement incident. So this isn't something that immediately affected patient care. It didn't reflect poorly on anybody in the surgery center. And it kind of shows that your organization takes very seriously all the things that happen in the organization. It has monitoring in place in order to identify those problems. And, you know, the interesting thing is after that, he fully understood. He really uh-huh. became, you know, quite a, an advocate for incident reporting because he understood the need for this. Now, I should point out that I'm not going out and recommending that everybody write up an incident report anytime that they find a cleaning uh-huh. problem. Uh, but in this particular environment, in this particular facility, there really weren't a lot of things that went wrong, thankfully. A knock on wood, of course. And uh, what we want to do is I, I try to encourage people to try to find, you know, four to five at least incidents within a quarter to demonstrate the types of things that are going on in the organization. And the important point to be made here is that robust incident reporting helps to prove that you have an active and robust quality improvement process in your organization. So as surveyors, when I go into an organization, I want to see incident reporting because this helps to show me that they are really taking it seriously.
1: It shows that the quality in your organization isn't just accidental. So like you always say, John, if there's not a large incident, you you keep kind of backing it up. And at some point, you're preventing those larger incidents by catching the smaller things. And so that's what you write up. You just Absolutely. show how you're, how you're getting in the way of, of letting things get worse.
0: Another way to look at it, too, is that if the only incidents you ever have are the really serious ones, mm-hmm. that makes it sound like, you're hiding all the others or that you're not taking this process seriously. Mm-hmm. So when you have ongoing incidents and then something does happen, like an adverse event, uh, it really kind of points out, uh, first of all, that you're taking it seriously, and second, that uh, the only events that happen there are not the serious ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the surveyor can see evidence of an ongoing, remember that word, mm-hmm. those, that phrase, uh, ongoing program in the, um, the ASC environment. So good incident reporting requires really good communication in your organization and understanding the role of incident reporting in your quality improvement process. So what you really need to do here is to encourage reporting. One of the things that I always did with uh, new centers starting up is I would tell them that I wanted to see three incident reports generated for that first day of operation, which was usually not a big problem because all kinds of things go wrong, obviously, Mm -hmm. on on that first day. (laughs) Uh, And then just to get them into the habit of doing incident reporting. Mm -hmm. and recognizing that it's not just for adverse events. So a good incident reporting system will encourage people to report things that fall outside normal parameters. So the obvious ones are, of course, transfers to the hospital, surgical complications, anesthesia complications, other clinical incidents. Not so obvious ones might be equipment breakdowns, particularly Mm -hmm. equipment breakdowns that happen during surgery that might require some type of intervention or delay in surgery.
1: And I think that was a a little bit of a, a learning for me when I started hearing you talk about this, is that even if something breaks down and there's no patient harm at all, and it really doesn't, even if it doesn't really even delay anything, right. you still have to, you know, write that up. and it or, has, or encourage it's still, you to write it up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. not a requirement, but that it's important to keep track of that you know, that can be an incident.
0: Right. You know, another way to look at it is, uh, this is how I approach it with nurses, because nurses, uh, as you know, Sue, you just fix things. Uh You know, that's your job. something goes wrong, you fix it. You don't take credit for it. You don't care about taking credit for it. But incident reporting provides you a mechanism for demonstrating the work that is going on Uh on a daily basis on the nursing side. And again, we could take this to extreme. I can remember back in the days when I was an administrator, I encouraged incident reporting way too much, and I used to get 40 <laughs> to 50 incidents a month, uh, which would take up almost all my uh-huh. time. And, you know, at a certain point, I just had to kind of say, listen, these are not incidents here. I appreciate uh-huh. the fact that you're bringing them to my attention, but let's kind of focus on on a certain level. Uh-huh. So you're, you're moving that bar around uh-huh. to get to an appropriate level. Obviously, if you have a lot of adverse events, uh-huh. uh, those things absolutely have to be reported. Yeah. But it's those things like equipment breakdowns or communication breakdowns or cleaning issues that you don't necessarily need to do unless they're yeah. you know quite major.
1: But sometimes too, if it's in a larger center, just keeping track of those things can help you identify if there's a trend because if there's a lot of different staff and and this one machine keeps breaking down, everybody may think it's the only time it's happened right so you know the more you can track <clears throat> it.
0: right. Can... And, and to that point, of course you're you're getting ahead <laughs> right now. <laughs> Sorry but no no but to that point, this is a, a way of keeping track of those uh, ongoing problems that occur. Uh-huh. Like if you see that your sterilizer is down every single month, um, you'll start to see those incidents, you know, and you should be tracking and trending all of these incidents, of course. You can see that trend and start to say, well, wait a minute, maybe it's time to consider, you know, replacing this, uh-huh. this piece of equipment. And ultimately, this all gets down to what we discussed earlier, developing a culture of quality, which really starts with your educational program. And I really feel that it's important both at orientation but especially on the uh, annual mandatory education that you spend an appropriate amount of time, perhaps 15 minutes every year and upon orientation, discussing with your staff how to do appropriate incident reporting and and how you're going to communicate the results of that incident reporting back to them afterwards. Mm -hmm. So you need to, to make sure that you develop a team approach to identifying, researching, fixing, and communicating changes in your organizations. In September, we spoke to Ann Schimmick at the California Association meeting where she presented a session on developing a culture of quality in an ASC setting, which really kind of takes uh, what we've just been discussing uh, in a little more depth, and, and particularly talking about the culture of quality. So let's listen to that interview.
1: John and I are now talking with Ann Schimmick. She has been in healthcare for 30 years. She was formerly with a large ASC management company and currently an independent consultant with Ann Schimmick Clinical Pathways, LLC. Welcome.
0: So welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on.
1: Thanks, John. It's nice to be here.
0: And tomorrow we're recording uh, from the annual CASA conference out in Monterey Bay here, beautiful location. And tomorrow uh, I'm uh, moderating a session that you're going to be on. So, Anne, you just finished a session on developing a culture of uh, safety in ambulatory surgery centers. I thought that would be a great topic to talk about here on the podcast. So tell me a little bit about the presentation.
2: Okay. So the presentation covered topics of things that they can do at their individual ASC facility to enhance the, the culture of safety for the patients to ensure that we're providing the highest quality of care in order to created a strong culture of safety, you need to have employee engagement and it also impacts the quality of care that you deliver. Without one of those components, you are not going to be successful in any one of those areas.
0: So, you know, you came from a a large management company and large management companies have, you know, lots of resources. How can a small center Uh, like our average uh, listener here, you know, how can they develop that culture?
2: So that was one of the things that I wanted to really provide during the presentation with things that they could take back and use at their facility. Things that are easily to implement ideas, suggestions, one of the first things that comes to mind is doing a daily huddle. Yeah. Um, when I first talked about this at an individual ASC level, they're like, oh, that will never work. We're way too busy. Yeah. We don't have time. Doctors we're, won't allow us to do overstretched. it. Yeah. All, all of those things that are all excuses. Right. Because really, when you're talking about delivering high quality health care, it's all about communication. Um, in the United States, there's nearly 440,000 deaths a year related to medical errors that yeah. should never happen. Absolutely, um, It's now become the third largest reason for death in the United States, only mm-hmm. behind cancer and, and heart um, disease. So it really is an area where, especially in the ASC, when things change, when patients come in and change their minds, you know, we're scheduled to do a procedure on my left knee, and today my right knee's hurting, so we're going to change that. How does that get communicated to the scrub tech that has printed off the schedule from yesterday? So those are why all of these things are so important. So a daily huddle is a perfect example of setting aside 10 minutes a day, the certain time of day, whatever works best at your center, whether it be in the morning or early afternoon, and one person from each department comes to the meeting. We don't bring chairs because we're not going to be there that long. Um, We include the materials manager. We include somebody from the business office and pre-admission test person. Everybody comes. They talk about today. How did today's schedule go? What issues did we have, if any? Hmm. What went well? Uh, What should we do more of and what should we do less of? And then we talk about tomorrow's schedule. We make sure we have all of the implants that we need for the schedule. We make sure we have the... Cases all pulled correctly. Um, It's at that point in time where the pre admission nurse can talk about the patients that are coming in. Is there a patient that has multiple comorbidities that we should probably have a physician review prior to the day of surgery? Do we have enough staffing on board to cover the schedule at the right times? All of those kinds of things. Are there any patients that have similar names that we should be concerned Mm. about? It takes about 10 minutes. The participants at the facility are responsible for going back and communicating what was talked about in their departments. And it really just, once you get it down, like I said, it can run very smoothly in 10 minutes' time and really share a lot of information that everyone needs to know and hear about.
0: So how is that going to improve the and develop a culture of quality?
2: So it develops a culture of quality because things don't slip through the cracks. Yeah. We're able to identify potential problems We're able to discuss when an incident occurred, where was the breakdown. It's important when things break down that we focus on our processes Hmm. rather than blaming people. Because Mm -hmm. obviously one of the key things in creating a culture of safety is making sure that everyone has a voice. And everyone feels like they can speak up and express a concern on anything that could be out of the Norm. Oftentimes, it's not so, but they have that chance to be able to speak up. I think one of the things that really is key when you're creating a culture is getting physician engagement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You need to have a strong medical director that is concerned about quality, always comes first. They're willing and able to step up and have crucial conversations with other physicians so that you don't lose that culture that somebody feels intimidated Mm -hmm. Um, We talk about airline industries a lot and how they have checklists and the checklist Mm -hmm. work. But what we don't talk about is the level of education. Both of those pilots went through the same level of training and the same number of years of experience. In the OR, it's much different. You might have a scrub tech that has graduated from high school, is a single mom with two or three kids she's responsible for, And is she going to feel comfortable to speak up when a doctor Mm. says, I'm the captain of the ship and what I say is always right. Don't ever question me. And although we've made a tremendous progress in in having a teamwork approach, Mm -hmm. we still have that amount of uncertainty in people that they're going to be protected. Crucial to having a strong culture of safety is having a firm stop the line policy Mm -hmm. in place. That everyone knows about so when you raise up this question I am concerned that this is the wrong dose of medications and we don't get a response now I'm uncomfortable that this Mm -hmm. is the wrong dose of medication and then it's a stop the line where the employee goes and calls their manager manager drops everything goes back and assesses the situation and most importantly thanks the employee for being willing to speak up very very important that everyone feels they're empowered to be able mm-hmm. to speak up at any time.
1: Yeah, whether the concern turned out to be anything or not. Absolutely. Just to always, they and it need can that never be or it will never Because exactly. if you discount
2: it, then that employee is not going to speak up next mm-hmm. week when the same situation is. And
1: in that case, they might be saving the surgeon. So. Absolutely. It's nice if they appreciate it.
0: Well, I think it also brings up another issue that the first time an administrator or nurse manager does not stand up for that mm-hmm. employee, that's the last mm-hmm. time that that employee will ever even think about and yeah, you're sending them. a
2: message to every yeah. other yeah. staff member that really we don't support you. It's more about getting things done mm-hmm. and the bottom line or getting more cases, doing more with less. And that's, that's where it's, it's a very, very fine line. Mm-hmm. We're very efficient in the ASE world. The physicians love to come to us. Our patients love to come to us. But it's also where you can't cut corners because when you start cutting corners, you lower the bar of expectations, and that's when when bad things happen.
0: So one of the things that we always look at when we're recruiting nurse managers is having that ability to stand up for the doctors. Talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so standing up to the doctors, it can be a challenge, definitely. Things that I have found to be very helpful is to have an administrator have a clinical director that are able to sit down and be reasonable with the physician, mm-hmm. um, take them data points. Physicians love data. And when you can show them how this something is affecting the culture, then that's how they're going to listen. So yeah. I think the best thing to do is to have this conversation, not at the beginning of a 15-case day yeah. where we're going to have bitter <laughs> and be angry all day, but sit down with them, whether you go to their office, take them some cookies, whether you invite them for a cup of coffee or lunch, and really just explain to them how their behavior is impacting the staff, that the staff are intimidated or the staff feel rushed and that they're concerned. Oftentimes when you have those conversations, they don't realize it when they're in the mode. I always say that when a surgeon comes in to do a lineup of cases, they're in the zone. And they get in that zone thinking about the next patient or the patient that they just completed. And they don't realize how their actions are impacting other people. So if you can have that conversation with them, that usually helps. Sometimes it's important to get another physician to have that conversation so that it's a peer-to-peer conversation rather than coming from a nurse to a physician. So there's ways that you can handle it. And most of the time, They're pretty reasonable, and they want to make sure that the right thing is done for their patients. So, But it's just about bringing it to their attention a lot of times. Well,
0: and you bring up a very good point, because I think most of the time when we talk about correcting problems, we want to correct it at the time that it's occurring. But Mm -hmm. that's not always a good idea when we're dealing with the population that we're talking about here with physicians who are are dealing with very complex procedures. Exactly. And
2: the last thing you want to do is send them over the edge at seven o'clock in the morning because it's just going to snowball. It's not fair to the patients. It's not fair to the staff and it's honestly not fair to the physician. So, you know, timing is everything with these. I usually encourage administrators to always have a bowl of chocolate in their office so that they can, you know, the physician stop by. I think it's also important to talk to the physicians on a routine basis about how are we doing What is, is there anything that we could do to provide a better service to you? Because oftentimes they get frustrated. I I call them pet peeves, but they come in and their patient's not ready. Sometimes it's in our control. Sometimes it's not, but, you know, they can't find the right scrubs. They can't, you know, those, uh, all of those things can become a frustration. I've asked four times to have this suture available for this case and it wasn't ready today. So if you can identify some of those things and, mm-hmm. you know, work with them, they're really pretty reasonable and will will definitely work with you.
0: Yeah, and I think the point you're making is they're often not the big items.
2: Right, exactly. It's, yeah. it's the little things. You know, I remember going into an ASC to get start started for the day, and I'd go to set up IVs, and there was no IV tubing, so you had to go find it. You know, any of those things that you can do to kind of alleviate those frustrations yeah. from a nursing perspective to a physician perspective to a patient perspective, it's always going to make you more successful and, again, really work to build up the team.
0: So you talk a little bit about the feedback loop and you know how do we reward people for uh, doing the right thing, for bringing these things uh, to the attention of management and then uh, continuing to encourage them to be part of the process. And, and again, recognizing that some of these people barely have a high school education right. when they come to work for us.
2: So it's really important to reward and recognize, exactly. And there's easy ways that you can do this that aren't expensive. Wall of Fame in the lounge where you post Patient comments where they really, you know, react to mm-hmm. how a nurse treated them goes a long way. Um, we're all very competitive. If we see Becky's name on the, the board on the lounge, we want to make sure my name is up there. Yeah. Um, another good way to recognize employees is to allow the employees to recognize each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if Mary puts a note up that John did a fantastic job with a really difficult patient today. That's going to make everybody feel better. So include the physicians in that, too. Mm -hmm. So that's an easy way. Other ways, you know, we we always talk about the OR and food is always (laughs) near and dear to everyone's heart. That's why I've been on a diet for
0: the last year. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) 17 years of eating that (laughs) food. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And that's why we all, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning still. Um, But I think that sometimes becomes routine. So and I also think you just need to remind them when you are doing things for them so that they remember, oh, she is going above and beyond what what she really needs to do. And easily just thanking them, thanking them for a nice job or walking through the lounge. And if one of them is eating lunch, say, you know, you really did a fantastic job with that patient today. We really appreciate your expertise.
0: Instead of why are you taking 15 minutes for lunch?
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Complaining about the dishes not being done, right?
0: (laughs) And it's not always about the money.
2: No, it's uh, not. Yeah. You know, um, another really effective way is to write them a thank you note. Yeah. Write a thank you note, mail it to their house. They can share it then with their family. Um, their family recognizes what a good job they do. And that's that's something that you can easily do that doesn't cost yeah. anything. It's it's a little time, <laughs> but it really does make a big, a big impact.
0: I, you know, I've always found it interesting over the years that, you know, we've always done – that where we uh, encourage uh, we, when we take the uh, post-op surveys and we, yeah. we publish the names or, or put the names up on a board so everybody can see. But you have to be careful with that because the people that they remember are <laughs> almost always going to be the PACU nurses. Exactly. You know, and if you don't somehow find a way to bring the the nurses that the poor patient doesn't remember In because the they, OR, they forgot right? the uh, they so, forgot their names. You
2: know, one way we've gotten around mm. that that's been really impactful is we put a thank you note card on the front of the chart. Mm -hmm. And everybody who interacts with that patient signs it. It's thanking them for entrusting us to take care of their health and to take care of their surgery. It also brings that to light, oh, that OR nurse was really friendly. Yeah, her name was Carol. That's a great idea. They can then recognize more than than just the packing nurse who Mm -hmm. brought them that nice hot cup of coffee. (laughs) Right, right.
0: Well, and I just, just finishing up, uh, you know, we spend most of our time in quality improvement and a lot of what we talk about uh, in the podcast here on a regular basis is quality improvement. So the quality improvement process, the quality improvement meeting shouldn't only be about the people that have licenses. Right.
2: It shouldn't be about just them. It it shouldn't just be about hand hygiene. (laughs)
1: Right, right.
2: It should be about, you know, the the team and um, how they're doing in these areas. Again, part of that meeting should be recognizing how many good catches we've had. Good catches are when something potentially could go wrong, but we catch it before it reaches the patient. And those are... Really important to talk about because those help us identify where we have potential breakdowns right. in processes that we can go back and correct prior to it reaching the patient. And, again, those are the employees, too, that we should be recognizing and rewarding as well.
0: Right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time.
2: You're welcome. It's been nice to be here.
0: Thanks. Thank you. So, Sue, as we were preparing for this section, uh, we just got news that our puppy has been born. Yes. So we're very excited. There were three girls and two boys. And mm-hmm. uh, we have, I think, uh, pick number two, if I remember right, of the, on the girl's side. So uh, we're very excited. Hopefully we'll get pictures shortly and we'll mm-hmm. try to post them uh, so that everybody can share in our excitement. So, we have no uh, state issues. Again, I would encourage everyone to, uh, as Michigan did for us, to uh, pass on information on state specific issues. Sue also, uh, we announced on LinkedIn that I have been working with Diana Powell to develop a state specific uh, series of books for amateur surgery centers. Mm-hmm. So, it's gotten quite a bit of feedback. Our first book, which is for the state of Massachusetts, is already out. Pennsylvania has been out for a while. We had uh, an individual who uh, suggested that we. We publish one for Arizona in celebration of the fact that this is the 50th anniversary and the first surgery center was uh, developed oh, in, okay. in Arizona and uh, also uh, Georgia. So uh, we will be uh, working on those. Uh, certainly, uh, it's going to take us a while to get them all done, but we're uh, continuing to work on it. So, but if you do have any state-specific issues, please bring them to our attention by uh, emailing us at info at ASCPodcast.com
1: you're never alone in the ASC industry, many organizations are eager to provide an opportunity to keep up on all aspects of running an ASC, and in this section, we highlight upcoming events.
0: If you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at com.
1: As one of the most sought-after speakers in the industry, John is available to speak at your state or national meeting, and the ASC podcast with John Gailey can even record an episode from your meeting.
0: The first ASC Nurse Leadership Conference presented by Progressive Surgical Solutions will be Thursday, February 6th, and Friday, February 7th at the McKesson Headquarters in Dallas, Texas. As we talked about earlier, Ambitory Healthcare Strategies is a proud sponsor of the event, and we hope to record a special episode from there.
1: The Georgia Society of Ambulatory Surgery Centers and South Carolina Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's joint semi-annual conference and trade show is February 20th and 21st at the Westin Atlanta Perimeter North in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: The Triple H-C Achieving Accreditation is an interactive, in-depth, two-day seminar designed to help organizations prepare for the Triple H-C survey. And the next one is March 13th and 14th in Miami, Florida. If you're considering a change from IMQ to Triple H-C, this is a great opportunity to learn more about Triple H-C.
1: This year's National Advocacy Day is taking place in Washington, D.C. on March 24th and 25th. Participation in ASCA's National Advocacy Day is the best way to build relationships with your members of Congress, advocate for your ASC and the ASC community, and network with other ASC leaders.
0: The ARN Global Surgical Conference is in Anaheim, California, March 28th through April 1st. We'll be attending the conference and recording a special episode there with uh, interviews of speakers.
1: The Florida Society of ASC's Quality and Risk Management Conference is April 16th and 17th in Buena Vista, Florida.
0: The Iowa Association of ASC's 12th Annual Education Conference is April 17th and 18th in Johnston, Iowa.
1: ASCA 2020 is in Orlando, Florida, May 13th through the 16th. It is the ASC industry's most highly regarded and well-attended event. Attendees include physicians, administrators, nurses, managers, and owners of ASCs from across the country and throughout the world. At ASCA's annual conference, you will find more than 50 educational sessions designed for ASC professionals at every level, nationally recognized ASC management experts, networking opportunities with more than a thousand of your colleagues, hundreds of exhibitors who can help you find the solutions your ASC is looking for, the latest regulatory and accreditation updates. Make sure you sign up to attend, and of course... A lot of the company will be there. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> Looks like somebody's going to be taking care of the puppy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I always end up reading this one, and I don't want to say we will be there because I won't be. But.
0: Becker's 18th annual Future of Spine, the Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC Conference, is June 18th through the 20th, 2020, in the Swiss Hotel, Chicago, and of course, Chicago, Illinois.
1: The Florida Society of ASC's annual conference and trade show is July 15th through the 17th at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida.
0: And the Ohio State Association Conference will be September 30th through October 1st at the Hilton Columbus Polaris in Columbus, Ohio.
1: Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button.
0: The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels.
3: This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all the rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development, All Rights Reserved. We would like to thank this week's sponsors. First, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, one of the nation's leading regulatory compliance and financial oversight firms. For a free consultation, contact John Gailey today at 585-594-1167 or through email at info at ah ah-strategies.com. And Eden Group Development, which publishes ASC Regulatory Compliance Series, the ASC industry's leading books, including the Survey Guide for ASCs, a guide to the CMS Conditions for Coverage and Interpretive Guidelines for Ambulatory Surgery Centers, and Ambulatory Surgery Center Governance, a guide for ambulatory surgery centers owners and governing body members. These must-have books are available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble or directly from the publisher at reg-books.com. That's R-E-G-B-O-O-K-S dot com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASC dot com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASC dot com.